0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about vaccine selfies. Are they a good thing to show people you're getting your vaccine, or are they just a sign of social media narcissism? Because they're everywhere. We're going to be talking about music, especially music from the pandemic. There are some songs that are popping up now about the pandemic life. Is this going to catch on? Are we going to in a few months, be hearing nothing but songs about the pandemic? And... We're going to be talking about race, about a piece in the National Post specifically that talks about our governments, our national, federal governments' seemingly official position on race. Some people are going to think it's perfect. I think an awful lot of other people are going to say, "Ah, wait a second. I'm against racism for sure, but I'm not into this." But we'll let you decide when you listen. Stick around today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There has been a trend lately that you probably have noticed, you will absolutely have noticed this if you are a social media user, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you're on Instagram, if you're on wherever, you absolutely will have seen the vaccination shots. Someone gets their COVID shot and chances are, very good chance, they will post a photo of it with a witty phrase like jabbed or got mine or something else. Um, I I tend to think when I look at a lot of these that it's a little bit ridiculous and it kind of is further evidence of the rampant narcissism that social media spawns that everyone feels like their inoculation is important to everyone else and in the broad sense I guess it is but anyway not everyone agrees with me not everyone shares that view some think this is really helpful and they have an argument to make they have a there's logic behind their debate uh, more helpful they would you know they would argue certainly uh, no one's arguing that social media sometimes brings out the narcissist in us, but the shot of people getting this would be more helpful than looking at someone's lunch that they post or a tree or something else. There's reason for this. Well, let me bring in Tim Caulfield. He is the Canada Research Chair in Health and Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta. He is a well known author who has written a whole bunch of books. A couple, I mean, he's written a bunch. Um, the Cure for Everything and Untangling the Twisted Messages about Health, Fitness, and Happiness. And one of my personal favorite titles of any book ever written is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything <laughs> when Celebrity Culture and Science Clash. Uh, Tim Caulfield joins us now. Thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me on,
0: Scott. So I said off the top, and, you know, I see all these people who are posting these photos, and I kind of think to myself, oh, okay, I mean, that's a little bit of narcissism going on there. Is it just look at meism, or is there something bigger going on here?
1: Yeah, I heard your intro there, and <laughs> I totally get it. I totally get it. I know many people find selfies sort of in general, grading, you know, they're sort of the quintessential annoying thing that happens on social media, um, they've almost become the norm on social media, right? The way you communicate is 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 through selfies. Uh, so I get it, you know. I get people feeling frustrated with with these these vaxes as, as they have
2: Vaxies, been called. That's a great yeah, vaxies.
1: word. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you That's learned great. something Today, Scott. Yes. Uh, and and the, and the other other sort of bad side, you know, in, on that side of the ledger, on the negative side of the ledger is is the idea that perhaps they are going to get people upset, you know, because they don't have access to, you know, if you haven't got your vaccine and you see someone, it's sort of like FOMO, right, You know, FOMO for the vaccine. Um, so I get that. And then other people have suggested that they kind of highlight the inequities of, of, the, of the vaccine distribution, right? You know, who's, who's the person, who are the people posting on, on social media, right? You know, what, what demographic is doing that? And you can probably guess. Okay, despite all those negatives which I, I do sympathize with, I think in the aggregate, they're a good thing because uh, there is still vaccination hesitancy out there. And we know that these kinds of this kind of messaging can have a positive impact. You know And I like to believe they're not narcissistic there, because I know people that, that have posted selfies, you know, of themselves with the vaccine that would never think of doing this in another context. And they're really what they're trying to do is celebrate the science, right? They're trying to celebrate this moment. They're trying to celebrate this act that they're doing not just for themselves but for their entire community. And we know that that can help normalize the process, right? We we know that there's, you know, research to back that up. So, I get the complaints, but in the aggregate bring on the vaccines.
0: I lo- now, one thing I do love about what you're saying, even though, you know, okay, you may not have completely brought me around yet, but there's one <laughs> thing that I do love that you've just said, and that's the idea of celebrating the science. Because, you know, I know there are those, and we'll get into it in a moment here, who still are hesitant to whatever else, but it is a pretty remarkable achievement when you consider how long it takes most vaccines that work to come out, That we, that scientists, that, you know, biologists and molecularists and everyone else have been able to pull this off as quickly as they have
1: totally you know i don't think we celebrate this enough it's almost like every time we have a conversation that touches on the vaccines we should start with that <laughs> you know just as a as the as the default this is like the moon landing right this is really incredible science and uh it's because of international collaboration and it's because we had these big fantastic clinical trials we were able to recruit people to be part of those clinical trials you know the funding was there now, this is this is the moon landing. Yeah, this is a moment to celebrate science.
0: Tim, you use the word hesitancy, and I think that's a great word. Uh, and I understand, as everyone does, there is some hesitancy in some corners because we've heard about blood clots or other things. But I'm wondering, has society changed its views that much over the last generation or two? I mean, you're the guy. You've written the book about Gwyneth Paltrow and celebrity... Wonkery uh, has society changed its view on vaccines that much that we now do need to advertise and promote getting vaccinated?
1: I, I think hesitancy absolutely is a huge is a huge issue, and, and we have good empirical evidence to back this up. There was a, a recent study that came out of the UK by Heidi Larson and, and her team that. that that actually quantified the impact that the current misinformation Scott, not even including the stuff that's been around for a while about, about vaccines, just the current stuff that has unfolded over the last year has had an adverse impact on vaccination intention, right? So we know, and there's been other studies that have shown that too. So we know that, that the hesitancy is 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 a real is a real issue. But let's talk about the good news. The good news is vac, intention to vaccinate has improved over the past year, and I think that's because of the tremendous efficacy of of these vaccines. But also, I think it's because of good science communication. We're seeing that happen more and more. Still, though, we need more people to get vaccinated. And we're seeing this in the United States, we're seeing this in other jurisdictions. As we get more and more people vaccinated, we're going to start bumping up against hesitancy. And in Canada, in my own province especially, there is uh, still a pretty high level of hesitancy. You now, the good news even with that group is I believe most of them are part of what I like to call the movable middle. You know, those individuals mm. that aren't hardcore deniers, but those that have concerns. And so we've got to listen to them. We've got to craft a message that's meaningful to them. And we've got to make them feel comfortable about getting vaccinated
0: is hesitancy the same thing in your mind or connected to complacency? Because people living today, for the most part, didn't go through polio and certainly didn't go through the bubonic plague or Spanish flu. And, you know, we we haven't had to experience something like this before. So we've, we've always just had this comfortable life without these kinds of things. And that allows us to, I think, become a little complacent towards what vaccines do
1: for sure i think that's part of, that is part of the story and 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 i and i think it's a, it's also uh, more complex than that right you know we just have complacency like uh, i'm not worried you know i'm in the younger cohort i'm not really worried about covid um that might mean that you are more susceptible to misinformation about it so if you have that kind of complacency and then layer on top of that misinformation about possible harms you may not want to get it you're just going to err on the side mm-hmm. of not getting it and of course that's a big mistake right cuz you get vaccines not just for yourself, not just for your family, but for for your community that's that 's why you you want to do it and, and the other element to to this Scott, is that uh, you know people are sometimes people don 't get vaccines for very practical reasons you know they don 't have good access, they may have mobility issues, they may have literacy issues there 's a whole bunch of reasons why people may not get vaccines. We always think of those hardcore deniers right but but there 's a lot going on there, and we 've got to tackle. We've got to tackle all those dimensions,
0: and that for, for sure, for sure. Although I would say it seems, anyway, um, you're the expert, not me. But it does seem that it's ironic we're talking about selfies and social media, because it seems that social media, in a lot of ways, is the prime driver of the conspiracy theories and of the reason people might be hesitant stuff they've heard on social media.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right, and I, I think I think it is it is ironic, but it's a good irony. It is a good irony because we want to go to where the misinformation resides, right? And, and you're, there, are, there is good research that suggests that this is largely, not entirely, but largely a social media phenomenon, this, this infodemic we're living in. And so uh, that's the other reason I kind of like uh, selfies, why I, I like vaccines, because they go to where the misinformation resides. They're a counterbalance to that misinformation that is just flooding social mm. media. It's the good stuff.
0: If we didn't have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, would we? Would you and I even be having this discussion today? Do you think?
1: Oh, what a great question! You know, I, I really don't think. Maybe you know, <laughs> my research colleagues out there may disagree with me. I really don't think it would be this intense. I really don't think so. I think it would be. It's so much. It would be so much more difficult to spread the misinformation. Uh, you know, the information channels would be easier to to control, and I, you know, people may not like that word <laughs> "control," but but. Uh, I, I think it would be very different.
0: Well, I mean, historically, and I, I don't know what happened, but polio was probably the last, one of the last times anyway, that everybody had to rush out or tried to get vaccinated. Were there hesitations when the polio vaccine rolled out? Do we know from history?
1: Yes, yes, we do. There, there's always been there's always been hesitancy associated with vaccines right, right from the start and And some of it had a, a similar kind of vibe to what we have today, you know issues about government overreach, uh, issues about consent, uh, and there was misinformation about the the contents of, of the vaccines so it's it's always been there and and sometimes it has been a tie to um, other ideological agendas uh but it is as you highlighted earlier it is very different today because of social media right because social media it makes it so much easier for those pushing this information just to create doubt you know to, to and and sometimes that's all you need if you layer on top of 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 the doubt some complacency and and other hurdles and barriers for people getting vaccines you know the combination of all those factors can mean that they're not going to get vaccinated so for sure social media a big part of the story
0: Tim Caulfield, I uh, really appreciate it. If you're needing, those of you listening, if you're needing something to read, a really fun read today, Gwyneth Paltrow, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash, go look it up. It's a great book. Thanks for doing this, as always. Love having you on. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in Eric Alper. He is a music writer. He is a publicist. He is a shameless idealist, as his bio says. Eric, how are you tonight? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. Listen, that song that I was just talking about, I want to play. Uh, People should look up the videos. Filmed at First Ontario Centre. There's nothing else going on down there. So they had the ice in and they made a great video. But I'm wondering, do you expect a lot of music in the days and weeks and months ahead to come out that is about the pandemic? Because isn't that what artists do? They sing about their experience?
3: Yeah, you know, it it seems like (laughs) as... Yeah, I'll I'll actually restart that because because it, that question is really interesting. You know, being a publisher in the music industry, around when we all got shut down around April, um, March or so, we were this industry was one of the first to be shut down and one of the last that is going to be reopened simply because we thrive and survive based on having a great deal of people together. And I'm not just talking about the big concert down at the arena in Hamilton, but. You know, a group of people, a band, a studio, engineers, producers, tech people, all together in the same place, creating something. Um, When we got shut down, it seemed like there was a little bit of trickling of songs that had to do with stuff that happened the summer before. Breakups and ice cream and puppies and the rest (laughs) of the stuff. And then around May, it seemed like every song got slower every song got moodier every song got um more about being alone and loneliness and isolation and that literally dragged throughout the year as people realized that if they're going to be creating music this is how it's going to be done in pure isolation maybe through somebody else on zoom but you're not going to be in the same room with anybody um and that really took a, a it did, It just didn't take a mental toll on people because it did, but it took a more philosophical and subject matter that I don't think any other art form has been able to achieve. Mm. We're going to look back on these moments and realize that if you want a really good, accurate representation of what the last 16 months had been, you have to look at what music was being released, not the films or TV shows.
0: Well, that's the thing, Eric, because TV shows and films, they'll they'll get around to this, but it seems like TV or movies are always about 20 years, you know, and it was in the 70s with Happy Days, let's say, that we yeah. look back at the 50s, and it's always, now we're getting movies about the 80s or 90s, but music is more, I mean, the Vietnam War, there was protest music all over the place about the Vietnam War while it was happening, and in the 80s, yeah. as people's attitudes got happier, the music reflected happier, it seems that's a much more immediate thing and it seems like that always happens that music reflects whatever is going on at that time
3: yeah you know going back to the tv stuff the, um i i once did a tweet that said something in, the, in like you know if the 70s show was being created right now using the same using the same time period it would be a reality it would be a comedy show based on 1995 Um, And there was nothing funny happening in 1995, which is, you know, all all the better for it. But yeah, you know, even in the 80s where you had bright, upbeat pop bands like Depeche Mode and Yaz and Duran Duran and Honeymoon Suite, it was all under the shadow of the nuclear bomb and Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev fighting like like another Cold War. Now you see um, very much, I think artists are trying to figure out what on earth they can write about and and it's no knock against them. It's just that it's hard to write about your experiences when you don't have any experience. Um, that's why I think for authors to write their books during this these last couple of months or last sixteen, seventeen months or so, you might not notice that much of a difference and I don't think publishers are going to be looking for a nostalgia period anytime soon, because this is not a period I think that anybody really wants to go back to.
0: Well, no, and I wonder, Eric, honestly, if people want the music that would reflect the pandemic. I mean, you talk about how it got slower and a little more dour and more moody. When we're all feeling those emotions, do we want music that just echoes that or do we want something that's fun and upbeat and tries to break us out of that? I I don't know which way people would want to listen.
3: Yeah, you know, if you look at the Songs of the Summer chart that Billboard publishes every year, you'll see that roughly about 70% of the songs are are dance songs. They're upbeat songs, they're R&B songs. They're they're not necessarily ballads. The record labels tend to hold the big, sobby ballads for um, October, November, December. When it's cold, when it gets darker earlier when people reminisce about the times and the, the months that have preceded there. So there's also a psychological effect of it as well. Um, although that, yeah, you know, there are some of the big ballads that come out during the summertime, you know, full of summer romance and, you know, putting yourself as, you know, right in the middle of like Greece or Saturday night fever. But for the most part though, the weather and sunlight and what we do in our spare time, in our leisure time, has affected the way that the music industry wants to build those hits and has been since probably 1956 of Elvis Presley and surely into the 60s with, with the Beach Boys.
0: Eric the other thing about this and you and I may have talked about this on the show before but this has been a very difficult time for musicians you're not selling a whole lot of albums right now because we don't sell albums that much now anyway times have changed you can't perform live you can't sell tickets how do they make their money right now or do they
3: Yeah you know that that's a lot to unpack so let's go with um let's go with with the with the song part first actually there there's there's not necessarily songs that are being written directly towards the pandemic, but there are a lot of inspirational songs that have been released. Um, Pitbull released one called, I believe that we will win Bon Jovi released, do what you can do. Um, One Republic wrote a song and, and released it called better days. So there's a lot of inspirational. We will get through this kind of momentum that's happening together. What's amazing is that nothing's really sticking though. Nothing is, is becoming the anthem like For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield during the Vietnam War or Ohio that Neil Young wrote and recorded and released with CSNY in like 12 days. But what's amazing about it is that if you're an older person, you are tending to go back to the classics. If you look at the Billboard Top 200 Album Chart, it is filled with classic albums that are that have been going steadily up the charts in the last 16 months. Bob Marley and the Whalers Legend, Metallica, Guns N' Roses' Greatest Hits, Nirvana's Nevermind just cracked 520 weeks on the chart. That's a full decade on the chart. CCR's Greatest Hits is still in the top 40 biggest albums sold in America. But if you're a younger person you have probably a little bit of interest in that kind of stuff. But on the Billboard Hot 100, it's six songs straight have been number one for the one week. That means that there is such a high turnover in songs that people are getting into the song, they're sucking it dry, and then they're moving on to the next track really quickly because we're all at home and we're not experiencing music as much as we can. So it's almost like if you're older, you're kind of going back to the comfort zones of your youth and when times were really good. And if you're younger, you want variety. You don't want to get stuck into a rut whatsoever. And I find that's really amazing right now.
0: I found a website and I wanted to bring this up because I I found this fascinating. I I came across this website and it-
3: Yeah, I did too. And I don't know- For the last hour.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know how much I trust it, although I don't know why I wouldn't. Um, it's, it calculates based on, I guess it's based on knowing how much an artist gets paid per listen and then how many listens they get on the different platforms, but you can look up basically any artist and find out how they have been doing during the pandemic money-wise. By looking at how much they've been listened to, and you know, some like Drake is, you know, Drake is Drake. Drake is making a fortune because everyone's listening to Drake. But I mean, I started typing in bands to see how they did. And okay, we're we're in Hamilton, so I put in the Arkells, for example. Again, if the Arkells uh, want to call in and tell me that their accounting, their accountant <laughs> says this is not true, that's fine. But this thing says, okay, Spotify, this year so far they've made, or I don't know if it's this year or in the last twelve months, nonetheless. Uh, twenty nine thousand dollars by itself for five guys, not a lot. But YouTube Red seventy five thousand dollars, Amazon Music 111000 hundred and eleven thousand, YouTube official content fifteen thousand, Napster ninety eight point nine five thousand, Title ninety two thousand, Apple Music fifty two thousand, Google Play fifty one thousand, Deezer forty thousand, Amazon Prime thirty one thousand, Pandora fourteen thousand. You know, it's it's this is a dry time for musicians, but th- that's not nothing.
3: It's it's not nothing. Now the Arkells happen to be one of the biggest bands in Canada, so let's let's say that that's the top one tenth of one percent of artists that are actually doing okay to well. Now divide that, as you said, by five band members, a lawyer, the record label, whoever owns the master, the producer all the way down to the distributor and then to the band, which gets paid last. So on average, you know, when people say that Taylor Swift helped sell, you know, a hundred million dollars worth of tickets she's probably ending up with maybe one fifth or one sixth of that because out of that come costs and staff and and all the rest of the stuff that goes on to making the taylor swift incorporated machine just run smoothly um so it's fun to go to royalty-calculator.com just for giggles just to go type in cheers for fears or you know duran duran or or something like that and just to see how much money bands like this are making um knowing full well though that they would probably may be making 10 times that on a 20 yes. cd on yeah. a 35 and, t-shirt and so forth
0: and eric we got to run but i mean i just we just we started this segment by talking about the trues and so i looked up because they've just got this new song out and you know th- their numbers again it you know good band Popular band, uh, Spotify, 6,000. YouTube Red, 15,000. Amazon Music, 22 and a half. YouTube Official, 3,000. I mean, you start going through this, you just see that these are difficult days for even musicians that have name recognition. They are not getting what they normally get. It's tough times. We'll see. We'll see if when this thing is over, And we got to run, but we'll see if this thing is over, if all of a sudden, as we've heard from a lot of people, everyone is just dying to get out and spend money on concert tickets and put some money back in these artists' pockets, or if this is the beginning of a difficult time. We're going to find out, I guess. Um, Eric Alper, we always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today.
3: Hey, no problem, man. We'll definitely talk soon enough. Thanks for having me.
0: We will for sure. And yes, the uh, the site, if you want to look it up, royalties-calculator.com, and you can very easily find yourself blowing a lot of time on there, typing in the names of all your favorite bands and artists and going, oh, how are they doing? You can check it out. It's kind of fun. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as everybody knows, I think Canada has, like every country has, ambassadors and diplomats and other people who represent us in countries around the world. Every country, I think, just about every country does this. And it operates, these people operate under Global Affairs Canada. And we want these people to be respectable members of Canada. We want them to be representative of what we stand for. We want them to reflect our values and our traditions and they are Canada to the rest of the world. And to that end, they receive training in a variety of things and they receive guidance. Well, they also receive training In race issues, because that is certainly a hot button issue in the world today, as if you haven't noticed that, I'm sorry, you've been asleep. You might, though, be a little bit surprised to learn what they are supposed to accept and the philosophies around racism that they are supposed to adopt and study. Tristan Hopper wrote about this in today's national post. I want to bring Tristan on because it, this is this, I I read this twice and I'll probably read it again. A fascinating piece. And as I said, one that I think is going to catch some people by surprise. Tristan, thanks for doing this. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to join us. Oh, anytime. Anytime. Thank you. Uh, So let's go back for a second. Once upon a time, we've always had, I think a, a race policy in this country or for a very long time. And for the long time, the official government position that was, we were to be supportive of equal opportunities and we weren't to be racist against people. And we were to try our very best to be fair and to not be anti somebody because of their background or, you know, on and on all the things I think that most people would say we think that has changed. It seems in recent years, it and maybe a lot I, explain where it's gone in recent years.
2: Yeah, this is just uh, this was basically prompted by the idea of so uh, over the last two years, you've seen uh, sort of a ramping up of anti racism, uh, and that's quote uh, anti racism unquote training um, within Ottawa. And I think people hear that and they think, well, that's just, you know, anti discrimination training. So I, I think a lot of people just sort of are envisioning a training that they've gone through in their workplace. Um, I know I've gone through a bunch of these, you know, just the basics, uh, you know, don't ask your coworker about their, their DAS star. Don't ask where they're from. You know, don't say, you know, don't question if they're Canadian, if they're a different color than you are, but, you know, the basics uh, that you know, you need to function in a multicultural society. Now there's a lot different. So anti-racism training um, is predicated on the notion that it's, it's not seeking an absence of discrimination, Um, Basically, this is, you've probably heard the term critical race theory. Um, It's explicitly uh, in support of uh, critical race theory. And critical race theory is different than typical anti-discrimination. Anti-discrimination is just, oh, treat everybody as individuals and do not discriminate. Uh, But critical race theory isn't seeking an absence of discrimination. Um, It's basically, it's coming at it from the standpoint that everything, like all of society, is so racist and so white supremacist, A lack of discrimination would just further that racist system. So the only way to go against it is to have active anti-racist, like race-based policies. So you can't just have a race-blind system. In fact, critical race theory says, oh, that that in itself is white supremacist. You have to have policies that are actively um, racist in the other direction. Not racist, but like race-focused. So it's a major shift that's happened. In the way uh, government workplace training is sort of looking at racism and discrimination, and I don't think a lot of people are aware of that.
0: Okay, and so uh, again, in short, what you're what I think what you're saying, and tell me if I'm overstating this. Sure. This theory, this philosophy, would say the entire system that we live in, the entire Canadian way of life, the entire system has racism coursing so thoroughly through all of its veins that it's essentially irre- irreparable or I- intolerable as it stands. The entire thing kind of has to, been, has to be dismantled or changed entirely to make it right. Is, is that over an outward statement?
2: Basically, yeah. You'll, you'll see different uh, definitions of what critical race theory means. So this is sort of an academic theory that began in the 1970s, and it's really ramped up. Uh, in recent years. So uh, the authors, uh, Robin D'Angelo and Ibrahim Max Kendi, are usually the most uh, popular sort of conveyors of this theory. Uh, but, yeah, the general thing is that, uh, yeah, they, they, they talk a lot about systems of power. So they're like, racism is not about the individual. Racism is about an entire society that was specifically built to be white supremacist. Um, so, yeah, it, it is basically alleging it's, it's an American philosophy and it's alleging that, yeah, all of society, all of institutions, corporations, whatever, um, are basically irredeemably racist uh, without specific uh, anti-racist policies put in place.
0: See, this I think is where a lot of people are going to have a discussion about this or have an opinion on this because, once again, and you've already said this, and I just want to highlight this the author behind this theory, the authors behind this theory would argue that there's no such thing as not racist, that someone listening right now who doesn't feel badly or anger or negative towards black people or Asian people or anywhere else, that's you may not be racist but it's not enough to not be racist. You're either anti-racist, so actively working against it, or you are automatically racist. And again, I think there's a lot of people who would say, well, by that definition, maybe most Canadians would be racist. I mean, again, is that too, I don't know how many Canadians would fall into the definition of not being, white Canadians would fall into the definition of not being racist by that definition.
2: So yeah, this kind of uh, this, this differing view uh, it, it came out into the open probably most publicly uh, during the BC provincial election, and I forget forget what the debate question was, but it was like what are you going to do to address systemic racism in BC or something? And then the Premier John Horgan, uh, who's an NDPer, um, he said, well, you know, I, I treat everybody equally, and he I think he said I quote don't see color, and he got into right. a lot of trouble for that um because yeah if you're following this philosophy you're saying well just not seeing color and treating people just as individuals and i mean maybe that's true uh maybe john horgan does every person he encounters he is just treating them regardless of what their color or anything is a critical race theory is more no you should acknowledge people's color and then treat them differently um as a result of that so they're basically making the case uh, that if you aren't acknowledging uh, race, um, all you're doing is basically allowing society to sort of cover up for uh, inequality. That's that's part. So it's part of the reason why you're seeing. If you looked at uh, the federal budget that came out on Monday, um, there's a bunch of new funding for like race-focused uh, data collection. So the, the the assertion is basically, if we don't have data collection on like you know which races are being impacted by which policies um racist
0: policy. One of uh, okay now let, let's let's ramp this up a bit and we'll go right to the headline of your piece. Now I know you know I, I work in newspapers as well. I know you didn't write the headline but nonetheless that's what people no, notice. I did write I wanted, the headline. Oh you yeah. did write this one. Okay, well let's okay, one of the key issues that you bring out and this is the one among all the stuff people can agree with critical race theory or not or find parts that they think make sense or not that's that's their choice one of the really interesting things that I think is one of the points of your piece and of this government official position it seems is that under this philosophy only white people can can have the capacity to be racist that that is going to yeah, have a lot of people the, saying uh, wait a second so, 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 hmm? go no go ahead
2: Oh yeah, that's specifically mentioned in the global affairs material. So that's not me sort of adulterating what it says. It it actually, there's a myth and fact section within the global affairs materials that says myth: non-white people can be racist. So the way they explain it is they basically say, um, you know, racism has to have uh, power behind it. So again, this is this is moving away from. The traditional view of racism, where it's like, oh, this, you know, racism is just, you know, prejudice. It's the, 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 the feelings within someone's heart. It's like, no, 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 this is, this is a whole society-wide, you know, conspiracy type thing. So they're saying, yeah, only white people, um, can be racist because they have the power of the state and, you know, they're beneficiaries of a racist system, so they're the only ones that can be racist. So they say, yeah, well, there's, uh, non-white people. Uh, but that's completely different. So, yeah, it is pretty openly, explicitly stated uh, that non-white people can be racist. Uh, only white people can be racist. And, uh, yeah, that's probably the most shocking part of the documents. And I've obviously gotten a lot of mail from this. Um, I was so just going to ask you story, what kind of response you've had. A lot of non-white people who are like, well, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm of Chinese extraction and, you know, I've got plenty of uh, racist Chinese friends or, you know, whatever. Uh, so. Anyway, I'll leave uh, your listener to come to their own conclusion. But that is sort of a fundamental uh, basis of critical race, race But
0: this, this because of who this is for, this is the official position of our government, I guess.
2: Uh, yeah, in, in the case of global affairs. So I haven't seen the uh, anti-racism training materials for other departments, but uh, presumably it, it's very different. I've just heard uh, a few voices from within the government saying, yeah, I went through this training. It's about the same. At the other part of departments.
0: Now, look, you're not the one who you authored this column. You didn't author this guideline. You didn't author this philosophy. But I, I mean, when I saw this, um, I, me nor I think I would hope most people listening would take issue with the fact that white people have been racist in the past, can be racist, are racist. No one's disputing that. But we have also, Tristan, seen numerous examples through history of genocides and other things done by ethnic groups killing other ethnic groups is that not racist mm-hmm. um
2: yeah i think uh, i mean i've understood racism and i think it makes the most sense so racism as i understand it is just the you know belief that your own race is superior and you know it doesn't say only if you're white um so i i think a majoritarian opinion among society would be that, um, whichever race you are, if you think that's the best race and all the other races are crap, that's a racist. Um, so yeah, critical race theory really does take a very different view of racism that is unlike anything else, uh, we've ever seen. So yeah, if I'm looking back at history and I'm looking at, say, imperial Japan, um, you know, storming through China and, you know, treating Chinese people as an underclass. Um, yeah, that's a racist philosophy. That's, that's Imperial Japan thinking their race is superior to another race.
0: And yet this this theory that, again, you've written about that the government seems to have taken as its official position, at least with our ambassadors, is that can't be because only white people can be racist. And once again, I want to clarify here, I don't think Tristan, I know Tristan is not, and I am not saying white people can't be racist. We're not arguing that white people are You know, it's it's possible.
2: Some of them uh, today. Yeah, there's definitely
0: racism. No, no, uh, clear. (laughs) Absolutely. And and no one would dispute that. Um, Here's another thing about this. Are most government positions, especially ones that would be maybe slightly controversial, and this may be more than slightly, are most government positions? Not made public in some fashion, so the people are aware of what our elected officials stand for or what their beliefs are. Because uh, you had to go through freedom, or someone had to go through freedom of information to get this information. Did you not?
2: Uh, Well, this 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 particular uh, one is interesting because this type of sort of anti-racism training—you've seen it sort of spread. um, It's very popular in the U.S. at within government departments, city councils, uh, corporations. So. You've seen it at uh, a lot of places. It, maybe it hasn't spread as widely in Canada, but this is obviously a sign that it is getting to our highest echelons of power. And, and again, as I mentioned at the outset, I think it's being a... Okay, racism training. I hate racism. This sounds great. And uh, they're not realizing it's it's a very different philosophy um, than I think uh, a lot of people are aware of. So, I, yeah, I think people reading my column today were like, you know, I hate racism too, but this, this seems a little off.
0: Two more things about this, and we got to let you go, unfortunately. We're short on time. But one, there are, you write, and I'm glad you pointed this out, there are elements of this um, that you, you put, and here's a quote from you. A chart outlining examples of white supremacy culture includes the principles of objectivity, individualism, and worship of the written word. I'm puzzled, and this is now back to me, not you speaking anymore. That, that was your quote. I'm puzzled by at least two of those three what that means as far as application objectivity and especially worship of the written word are, are, does that mean that, well, what does that mean? I don't know.
2: Uh, yeah. So it's not elaborated on, uh, too much in the global affairs documents, but I'm reminded of there was like this, this got a lot of press. It was sometime last year. I think it was the museum of African-American history in the United States. A similar list. I think it sort of sprang from the same material, and they were like, you know, here are the indicators of whiteness. You'll see the term whiteness a lot. And that got pilloried, um, including by a lot of members of the black community because it included things like objectivity, like showing up on time, work ethic. And they were like, these are whiteness and, you know, they shouldn't apply to other communities. And you had people saying, well, you know, that's, that's the, that's the most racist thing I've ever seen. Um, you're taking all these just, you know, uh, uh, you know, basic human traits that plenty of cultures around the world um, see as good traits, and then just attributing them only to white people. Um, so, yeah, I included that in the column because it does sort of stand out um, as being particularly strange. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say only white people can be racist, but then when you're taking sort of things that I think a lot of people would see as objectively positive, you hope your children would exhibit these qualities and saying, oh, no, that's, this is white supremacy. That's, that's, it's sort of strange from another, a different direction.
0: Well, and the quote, worship of the written word, I hope that our ambassadors and diplomats are well-read and well-educated, and I don't know that if we're then saying, but if you are uh, someone who worships or spends a lot of time or really trusts or dives into the written word, if that's a negative, if that somehow is racist... Then you're presumably then, as a government, sending racist people around the world to like it, it, it becomes the spiral I would hope of I think thinking. Lamad
2: is sort of raising their hands and being, What's this about the written word? Uh, be- ignore um, the vast, vast quantities of non white people who are really quite good at the written word.
0: Uh, just before we let you go, what. Where does this go? Does this go anywhere? Like, do you wonder if this is an introduction to this into the country that this will become more prevalent, or do you think no, this is just something that is just going to be here and will stay at this level, and we're not going to have it trickle down into the rest of the country?
2: I'm not sure. I I, I, I wrote this because, as I mentioned, I'm not of of what it actually looks like at the sharp end. They're just seeing, "Oh, government anti-racism training. That's fine." So. Um, I don't know. I think it's, it's a, it's a policy that's so just inherently contradictory in a number of ways. And yeah, it, it has sort of these assertions that just seem wrong to sort of the average person that I'm not sure. This might just all be some, you know, interesting phase in our history. So, um, um, yeah, I, 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 I would put my money on, uh, this probably not being federal policy
0: within five or 10 years. The piece is on the National Post website. You can read it there. Only white people can be racist inside Global Affairs Anti-Racism course materials. The author is Tristan Hopper, who's been joining us. Tristan, really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this today. Thanks for this. Thank you. Uh, you know, we, we talk about this because, look, I've, for some of you, you're going to disagree vigorously with everything we just said on either side. And, I, you know, we, we definitely want people not to be racist. I don't think there's like, if you're out there saying, oh no, I'm fine with racism. Well, that's not acceptable. That's just not, that's not what we want in our country. We don't want people who are looking at other people, looking down at other people, looking differently at other people, holding other people back, being negative to other people, attacking other people, whatever we don't, we want none of that stuff based on their race or their background or whatever else we've has. We have seen And I mentioned it, we've seen in history what happens when that expands, when that takes root and whether it's American racism in the South or whether it's anti-Semitism with the Holocaust or whether it's, you know, the Haiti massacre once upon a time, whatever different groups who are trying to purge other different groups because they're different. And whether it's individual by you or whether it's by the, we don't, there's nobody that that, that we want to give any time or attention to. There's nobody that wants that. There's nobody that wants that. At the same time, I'm not sure that our government should be attaching itself to an extreme, extreme position that most Canadians, I would say most Canadians would say, no, I don't, I don't buy that theory as, truth. I don't buy that theory is fair. I don't buy that theory is where we should be starting with. I think we should absolutely have movements and actions and policies to get rid of racism. And if someone does something that is racist, they should be dealt with. We we, we don't have time for that in 2021. We just don't. But to go the complete opposite direction and say that white people, only white people can be racist. And then if you read other people who follow, I mean, go online and search critical race theory, and you will find a lot of people who go even further than that. This theory can go a lot further than that. There are some, I read a piece today from a professor in, I don't know where she is, in the States somewhere. And the argument would be, well, Everything, no matter what happens, no matter who the person is, who's attacking who, it is the result of white supremacy. And she was citing the example of a black person attacking an Asian person. She writes, the encounter is fueled perhaps by racism, but very specifically by white supremacy. White supremacy does not require a white person to perpetuate it. And, you know, again, I'm looking at this going, we want to get rid of racism. I'm not sure that the answer to getting rid of racism is taking a position that just flips the racism and continues continues to point the finger and concentrate solely and entirely on blaming race. I don't know that that solves our problem. Even if it changes some things, I'm not sure that continuing to just harp on race as a divider... Is going to get us anywhere? What was that? Th- what was that line by Martin Luther King about the content of your character rather than the color of your skin? Uh, you should read the piece, though. It is a fascinating piece about apparently, apparently, our government's official position, at least through part of the government. It's um, it's an eye opener. The Scott Radley Show weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.